the idea that that people who were very familiar to me growing up were also the stuff of art, that their lives and their work were the stuff of literature. Um, and it really just made all the difference in the world to me. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Elizabeth Wetmore, author of the novel Valentine. I came to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop from a job waiting tables. Um, the day that I found out I got into the workshop, I was literally walking out the door to my shift. Elizabeth Wetmore is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is a recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and two fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council, as well as a grant from the Barbara Deming Foundation. Her fiction has appeared in Epic, Kenyon Review, Colorado Review, Baltimore Review, Crab Orchard Review, Iowa Review, and other literary journals. A native of West Texas, Wetmore now lives and works in Chicago. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the novel, Valentine. So I'd like to begin by congratulating you. Uh, this process of writing Valentine, I know it was a long and tedious process, but I think you showed a lot of patience and vision uh, to achieve a level of success that a, a lot of authors would envy. So I just want to say congratulations on the success of your novel, Valentine. Thank you so much. Um, next, I'd like to talk about uh, a New York Times article, and you said that you made a promise to yourself that you would be mindful about talking about what this looks like for working class writers, writers who don't come from families or communities where people are saying, yay, write full time. What do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, I, I sometimes think that um, particularly in, in American, you know, letters, we we have this kind of sense of of writers as you know people who you know they go to their bachelor's degree you know they go to college they they get a degree they maybe go to an mfa program they get a book deal and then they're they're off to the races um and and for me um that was not my experience at all um i i went to college after spending some time you know waiting tables and having adventures as a young woman um and uh, sort of worked my way through college. So it took me a while. I started at a community college, taking one or two classes at a time while I waited tables and had adventures, um, and then made my way to a four-year college. Um, I went to graduate school when I was 33, I think. Um, 
and um, I'm 52 now, and this is my debut novel. So, so for me, writing has always been something that I've had to sort of squeeze in around the edges of the rest of the life I was living, which included, you know, always earning a living, um, you know, keeping a roof over your head, raising children. And, um, and I think that, you know, of course, I mean, the, the, the literature of any country, any community is poorer when you don't have a, a great diversity of voices, you know, so, so the more work you have, you know, by people of color, the more work you have by women, the more work you have by working class writers, you know, the, the richer the, the literature is. And, and I know that we've lost, um, I think a lot, you know, about um, the work that's been lost because people just couldn't quite do it anymore or because they they reached an age or a point in their life where um, they felt like maybe those doors had closed for them um, and uh, or because they couldn't work two or three jobs and then come home and write late at night for even an hour, you know. So so I, I wanted, you know, I've, I've, I've always wanted to kind of... Um, uh, among all the things I've wanted to talk about with my my book, I guess one of the practical things I've I've wanted to talk about was, um, you know, the idea that for a lot of writers, it's important to to honor the the reality that you're not on someone else's timeline, you know, and that there are a lot of different paths and ways to get here. Um, you know, for me, it was a really circuitous and long path. Um, and, and and I'll be honest with you, aside from, you know, working to, to pay the bills, I think you, you hear about these writers who, who write these brilliant, insightful, deeply humane novels, you know, that that speak to the the universal truths of, of, of living, you know, sorrow and joy and struggle. Um, and they do that at 25 years old. Um, and, and that's brilliant. Um, but I, I was not that writer. Um, I'm very much a writer who's had to learn lessons along the way to become the person I had to become to be able to treat these characters with the kind of tenderness and compassion and nuance and, and, and sort of, you know, steely eyed truth, I guess, you know, <laughs> that they deserved to be able to write the book. So I'm, I'm, I fall squarely into that category of people who had to, to get a fair amount of living under my belt before I was able to write this book. Mm. I think you bring up an important p point about accessibility and opportunity and resources that are available, not just to the writer, but to the various publishers and, and, and their ability to choose who gets published and who doesn't. Do you, do you recognize any ways in which we can improve accessibility to publishing? Um, you know, the, the publishing industry, I'm so new to this, that the publishing industry is still, you know, very much a, a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, I mean, obviously, um, you know, I think there's been a lot of conversation recently about the importance of having a lot of different types of people working in publishing, um, you know, who are who who may have a, a keener eye toward um, ferreting out good work that's out there that's maybe not being seen. Um, from my perspective, um, so I can't speak to publishing, you know, too directly because I'm so new to it. I, I can say that there were a, a lot of things that really saved my, my 
my writer's life. Um, and, and two of them were, you know, I got a, I, I was awarded an, a national endowment for the arts grant when my son was two years old. Um, and that year I got a complete draft of a book, you know, um, practically all of that money went to childcare. Um, I had a couple of residencies that, um, enabled me to, you know, um, go to to a beautiful place in the woods for about four weeks and you know concentrate on nothing but writing and um, those were real lifesavers so i think you know obviously practical support um is 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 one way of of kind of increasing um the kinds of voices we hear you know um but but in terms of publishing i i just don't i just i'm still learning It's interesting you say that that grant uh, helped you with childcare. A, a lot of writers do struggle with that, being able to write and and parent at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it was a lifesaver. I mean, I you know, I, I it was uh, obviously I had to pay my taxes out of it, you know, so I paid the taxes on it and then looked at what was left over. And I think practically every dime of that, you know, I, I might have I might have gotten a couple of little office supplies out of it, you know, maybe a, a little cheap printer or something. But other than that, I mean, it all went to childcare and it was a, and it was a lifesaver. It made all the difference in the world. Well, let's talk about your writing. Let's talk a little bit about Valentine. I, I, the importance of place kind of shines through in this novel. I mean, just throughout page by page are just little elements of, of the place talk about including those elements. Were they things that you experienced yourself growing up in West Texas, or were there just things that you had to research and find out about the place? And also, I'm curious, would you consider the place itself as a character of the novel? Absolutely. Um, and, and I will say that, you know, to, to answer to your question about getting to place, you know, yes, all of the above. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of reading. Um, you know, one of the things I learned in very short order when I began writing the book was that growing up in a place doesn't necessarily mean being able to see that place or the people who inhabit it in in sort of complicated a way, you know, enough ways to be able to write a book about them. Um, I left home at 18 and um, and I did not start working on this book until I was in my late 30s. So I had been gone for a long time when I started working on the book, um, but I still have family in the area and I'd go back as often as possible to visit family. And uh, one of the things I did um, was I, I made it a point every time I went home to go for long, long drives through the oil patch and then and then beyond the oil patch into the the far west Texas region where the the beautiful Chihuahuan Desert sort of takes over the landscape. And um, you know, of course, like a lot of people, um, I have a pretty complicated relationship to my hometown. So for me, falling back in love with that land was really my first entry into the book. Mm-hmm. So, d- did you do additional research into politics of the times or the oil industry, industry, cattle ranching, those sorts of things? I did. Um, some of it, I had, I, I had some inside tracks into cattle ranching. Um, my my sister's married to a cattle rancher, so I was able to 
interview um, that entire part of the family and and take a lot of spend a lot of time out on the ranch. Um, I spent a lot of time um, at the downtown library reading through old newspapers. Um, you know, I read some of the the literature of that place and history. Um, uh, I listened to a lot of music actually um, that I thought my characters uh, would would likely be listening to given their age and their station. So um, I listened to a lot of Joe Ely and um, Chris Christopherson. It's set in 1976. I, I kind of fell in love with Outlaw Country. Um, for my older character, Kareen Shepard, um, I listened to um, a lot of Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys and jazz, you know, um, and sort of tried to immerse myself as much as I could um, you know, in, in, in that time. So there was a period of time when I was working on the book, um, when, if you walked into the the little corner of the bedroom where I write, um, you would just have seen the walls just plastered with images from the seventies, um, and, you know, different pictures of people and character, you know, who I, who I kind of had in mind as I was writing some of these characters. So that actually sounds like quite a lot of fun, almost like immersing yourself into an acting role. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I'd been gone for a long time. And, and when I was there, I was born and raised in Odessa. I left when I was 18. Um, but, you know, as a, as a little girl growing up, you know, um, in the, you know, kind of bottom end of the middle class, I guess, my dad worked at a petrochemical plant for 30 years. Um, you know, I, you know, growing up on, on, you know, in a neighborhood, in a town that was deeply segregated then, you know, um, I, I, there was so much that I was not able to see, you know, um, so for example, um, the kind of, the kind of violence that, that accompanies an oil boom, um, you know, when it, when, and, and whether, and that's true, I think across the board, whether it's an oil boom in South Dakota or an oil boom in West Texas, there's a precipitous rise in violence and particularly violence against women and girls. Um, you know, that was something that I just really wasn't privy to as a little girl. Do you think that any of that violence or segregation will shock readers of today? I know I was reading and the you you had mentioned in the novel the preacher talking about the evils of desegregation and it just just caught me off guard do you think that will shock readers i don't know um i will tell you that um the schools in my hometown were desegregated in 1982 um and and i and i will tell you that um the the racism that i was writing about in 1976 um was not new to that region in 1976, and it has not passed now. Um, so as an example, um, you know, one of the things that's really changed, you know, in Texas are the demographics. Um, in my hometown now, um, about 54, 55% of the population identifies as Latino. Um, but the last time I checked, there wasn't a single person on the city council with a Latino surname. You know, um, now that can change, of course, at any moment. So so it's changed in a lot of ways. And in other ways, you know, those those sort of those social ills that that poison of racism um, lingers to this day. Sure. Well, tell me a little bit about developing this into a novel, because I know you prefer the short story firm, I think, form. And I think this started out of a short story. 
Was that a challenge for you to develop this into a full-length novel? It was. Um, yes, indeed. The, the short story form is, is the form I'm most comfortable with, um, and it's the form that I most love. Um, and, and to this day, honestly, I don't think I really know how to write a novel. <laughs> um, but I don't know, maybe, maybe no writer ever really knows how to write a particular novel. I remember overhearing, I remember hearing an interview, I think it was on Fresh Air with, um, Philip Roth many years ago. And, uh, and she said, you know, oh, you know, this is your newest novel. It must be getting so much, you know, you surely, you know how to do it now. And he said, no, you know, every novel is different and every novel has to teach you how to write write it. You know, each book has its own demands. And, and part of the process is listening to the work and the characters and the voices in the world and, and letting those teach you how to do it, you know. Um, so, so it was, it was very difficult at first. Um, and, and really, you know, I, I, I think if you've read the book, I think that the, 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 the roots of the short story are, are there not only in those opening chapters, but in several other chapters in the book. Um, mo most of those chapters read almost as if they could be, you know, sort of contained stories. And, and I like that. I like chapters that have like a clear arc, you know, within themselves. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I... I, I wanted to, in a lot of ways, mimic the short story. But the the one thing that I do love about novels is I feel like the, the novel gives you a little more space and time to maybe explore ideas a little more. And so I, I really fell in love with that, you know. And so this, you know, the, the exploration of racism and violence against women, you know, um, the exploration of the idea that, you know, um, you know, when a, when a, when a stranger comes to your door and asks for help, you know, what do you do, right? And whether that stranger's a little girl who literally knocks on the door at the beginning of the book, right? Or or the stranger is your neighbor who is is really struggling. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that's probably one of the most important questions we all ever answer in our lives is what do we do when the stranger comes to our door, you know? Um, so that those were ideas that I felt like I could explore a little more because of the the form of the novel. I had a little more time to sort of wander a bit. That makes me think of um, something I think John Gardner said that there are two types of stories, one where a person goes on a journey and another where a stranger comes to town. Was Did that inspire you at all or was that a part of your thought process? Yeah, I love him. Um, yeah, I for sure. You know, um, I think uh, I've I've heard something very similar in some of my writing classes, and yes, it it definitely did. Except, you know, it, what's interesting in my book is that that the stranger who comes to town is not a stranger. You know, she's a she's a local girl, right? But she's a stranger to you know most of the other characters because they are, you know, white women living in a deeply segregated time and place, you know. So so the way that I had their worlds interact was really tricky, um, I think, for me. So, for example, after that initial opening scene, um, you know, she she never directly encounters that woman again. They they really do live separate lives and have separate experiences um, in that town and, and in this book. So
Well, talk more about about those women, about your characters, uh, about. I read that you you said you wanted to write about the ferocity of these women's spirits. Uh, so tell me about getting to know these characters and, and getting them down onto the page. Mm-hmm. Well, each of these characters is sort of a an amalgamation of women and girls I kind of grew up listening to. I was a in 1976, when this book is set, I was about the same age as the little girls who lived on Larkspur Lane. Um, and, um, and I really mined my own memories of that time and place um, to get sort of the, the physical details right, um, but also to, to get the, the voices of the girls and women right. Um, I was an avid reader as a little girl, but I was also an avid eavesdropper. <laughs> and uh, so I, I spent a lot of time as a little girl sort of sitting out on the back porch after supper, listening to my mom and some of the other women in the neighborhood um, sort of talking about their days and their lives in the city. You know, um, during oil booms, I, I listened to them talk about new jobs and saving money and, um, you know, um, their hopes for the future and also the terrible traffic and the way housing prices would skyrocket and some of the social ills, you know, that, that accompanied an oil boom. And during oil bust, I, I listened to them talk about who had lost a job or whose house had been foreclosed on. Um, and so those stories really stuck with me and those voices really stuck with me. Um, and, and so I, I knew very early that I was going to allow the women and girls voices to direct this book. And, and for me, that meant a really a deep dive into and an emotional one into each character's voices and circumstances to to write these characters, I, I really had to access every bit of my own understanding and mercy and anger. You know, um, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm always really pleased when people talk about the, the anger that sort of courses through this entire book, um, you know, which is, I think, uh, which was very much intentional. So I had to see these characters really clearly, flaws and all. And at the same time, I, I had to also see them as larger than themselves. Um, you know, the whole world sort of contained in each woman's story and each girl's story. Was it difficult plotting the novel by, you know, deciding where to put uh, which story, you know, in which places? Um, yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I think that... Um, you know, uh, you know, in, in so far as every book has its flaws and its, uh, and its weaknesses, I, I would say probably plot is likely to be one of the bigger flaws of this book. <laughs> um, and, and that, and I'm okay with that. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I did a lot of, I, I did a lot of playing with arrangement, um, there were times when I would just print out the entire book and sort of spread the pages out, you know, across the bed or across the floor and, and play with moving things around. Um, and, uh, and again, I really tried to let the, the voices in the book direct the, the plot as much as possible. So, or, or at least a rise out of characters and, and how I thought characters would react at, you know, at any given moment or to any given obstacle that I sort of set in front of them. Well, whatever, whatever flaws there may be in, in plotting, I, I, the, the strength of characters and the, the, the strength of detail 
and eloquence in your writing, I think definitely overcomes that. Well, I hope so. You know, I mean, I think, uh, I think a lot about flaws and, and the importance of flaws and the, and the beauty of flaws. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of Leonard Cohen's work. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the music of Leonard Cohen. Um, but in one of his favorite songs, he says, I think the song is called Anthem. And he says, uh, there's a crack in everything, right? That's how the light gets in. And so, uh, I, I, you know, I'm okay with flaws. <laughs> so, um, in a lot of ways, I think that those can be some of the, the best parts of any piece of art. So. Yeah, it, it definitely gives it its own character, its own flair. Mm-hmm. I want to know about uh, mentors. I know you graduated from the Iowa's Writers Workshop. Tell me about some of the mentors you've had along the way to help you with this. Oh God, so many. Um, I, I guess I, I, I want to talk about my teachers, but I, I want to also say at the outset that, you know, for, for every writing teacher who's been a mentor to me, um, perhaps because of my sort of unusual way and uh, circuitous route to getting to, to writing and to becoming a writer, for every sort of writing mentor I've had, I've also learned so much from the people who have mentored me in, in more informal ways, um, other waitresses at my jobs, <laughs> um, older women who had been bartending for 30 years, um, you know, landlords who were particularly kind and generous to me at times when I really needed it. Um, you know, so, so for me, mentoring has been um, something that's been a kind of part of my daily life and my daily work life in particular. Um, and I think you see that, you know, all through the book. Um, but at Iowa, um, my first teacher there was a guy named Chris Offit, who was really, uh, I'm not sure I would have made it through that program without him. Um, and in addition, in addition to just being incredibly kind to me personally um, and, uh, and assuring me that I belonged there. You know, I, I came to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop from a job waiting tables. Um, the day that I found out I got into the workshop, I was literally walking out the door to my shift. Um, and so in addition to being just incredibly kind to me personally, um, he introduced me to the work of a guy named Brees DJ Pancake, a young man who, who died very young, but he got one collection of short stories um, called Trilobites under his belt first. And uh, the stories were all set in the West Virginia coal mining country. And it was really, to me, a, a real early glimpse of, of the the idea that that people who were very familiar to me growing up were also the stuff of art, that their lives and their work were the stuff of literature. Um, and it really just made all the difference in the world to me. Um, I was also incredibly fortunate to study with Marilyn Robinson, um, who was the advisor on my thesis and uh, who brought to every conversation a kind of sense of, of, of the dignity of, of humanity and the importance of looking to your work to try to do something a little larger, to try to speak to some larger truth, to, to sort of bridge gaps between people. Um, 
and so she was, and of course she's also just brilliant. Um, so, uh, those, those were two mentors. Um, I had the good fortune to study with James Allen McPherson, who, um, again, just, a, a deeply humane writer. Um, a little later, I, I took a workshop, uh, you know, at a writer's conference with, a Luis Alberto Orea, who's, um, who's again, you know, turned such a tender eye toward all of his characters. Um, you know, um, I, I think for me, the mentors who have been the most meaningful have been writers who, who have a kind of deep sense of compassion and, uh, and, uh, kindness to their writer to their characters even even those characters who are sort of deeply 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 flawed or or in the case you know of of my writing um you know some of my characters are are characters who you know have kind of been on the wrong side of history or come from families that have been on the wrong side of history and so finding that balance between seeing their lives clearly um, and also, you know, seeing them with a, a deep sense of empathy and compassion was something I, I feel like I, I very much learned from all of my mentors. Well, I think that's very well said and, and encouraging, too, just to hear that, that your inspiration comes, you know, beyond just, you know, your education, but from everyday life and from everyday people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, as I like, I, I recently had occasion to do the math because I, I it had come up in a few interviews and I found myself sort of stumbling a bit. Um, you know, I, I waited tables for a grand total of 12 years, you know, um, I bartended for about another three, you know, so, so I've got like 15 years of, of, of material gathered <laughs> from my work in the food service industry. And, um, you know, the folks I worked with in those jobs, you know, taught me as much about writing as anything else that I've ever experienced in my life. This is a sort of uh, out of personal interest that I'm asking this question. I'm curious, when did you decide it was time to start submitting the manuscript to agents and publishers, and how did you make that decision? Um, so I, I, you know, for me, the 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 road to publishing has been. Um, in spite of you know being somewhat circuitous on my end with the actual writing. Um, the road to publishing for me has been pretty lucky, I would say. Um, my agent found me um, because of a story she had seen in a, in a literary journal. Um, so, so she came to, she reached out to me. Um, so I, so I skipped that big step, you know. Um, and then, uh, you know, she was my agent for four years before I finally, you know, finished this book. Um, and, uh, and then once I finished the book, I, again, I was incredibly fortunate, um, you know, the book sold pretty quickly. So, so I didn't, I, I, I was really incredibly lucky in that I, I skipped some of the usual steps. I, I didn't write, you know, um, I didn't write any, any letters of inquiry. Um, you know, I had, I had already sold the book when I was trying to put together a, um, you know, some kind of sort of, what, what do they call it? The elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was, you know, by the time I was putting together an elevator pitch, I had already sold the book, you know? So, so my story is maybe not particularly helpful because I, I got lucky and I was able to skip some of the, 
the steps along the way. So, well, I, I wouldn't say you you skipped it. Uh, it sounds like you 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 know you did avoid some of those more more grueling steps, but I think sure. it can be attributed to the all that hard work you put in and, and learning how to write and putting yourself out there with short stories and those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah, and I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely lucky, but yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I I worked on the book for a very long time, and there were. There were months and years, you know, when um, I thought about walking away from it um, or I had to set it aside to earn a living or um, I lost my nerve. It was incredibly important to me to get these women and girls stories right. And I didn't always have confidence in my ability to do that. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's the, for me, the, the work came with the, with the book, you know, um, and then the other things, you know, again, fortunately fell into place. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yes. Um, well, like a lot of writers, um, you know, (laughs) um, right now, um, a lot of what I'm writing is just, uh, the sort of longhand version of rocking back and forth in the corner because of where we all find ourselves, you know? Um, and like a lot of writers, you know, I'm finding my writing to be, uh, frequently interrupted by my own musings about, um, this pandemic and uh, my own worries as a parent, you know, about how this is going to change my 15 year old son's life and how it has already changed his life um, and how this is, you know, going to change this country um, and the world, I guess. Um, So, so I've been doing a lot of journaling, which will probably never really be um, meaningful in any way, except that it's helping me sort of get through the days and try to, you know, keep my eye on, um, you know, the, the, the possible good that may come from some of this, if we, if we are able to do it right, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, but, um, that being said, I'm also, um, working on the, the early pages of the next novel, which is also going to be set in Odessa. Um, this one's going to be set a few years later. Um, so those little girls on Larkspur Lane will be 15 when the book opens. And, uh, and the, the region will be um, about to enter the, the really the big bust of the 80s that was so devastating to that, to that part of the world. So it's a di- my hometown's a really different place depending on whether there's an oil boom or an oil bust. And so. having written the book now that's about the oil boom, um, I'm, I'm interested in the oil bust that comes, you know, that's on its heels. So I think that's great that you're continuing with these characters, with the setting. I should probably timestamp this interview. Right now it's May 18th, 2020, for those who might be listening later on. Uh, just to put that that all into context. So, um, what what will readers discover from from Valentine? What do you expect them to to get out of it? Oh gosh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I, I I hope that they fall in love with these characters um, and this place. Um, you know, I I. Although I, I, you know, although I've said I, I, I wanted, it was important to me to tackle racism, you know, head on, um, you know, as much as anything else that, that had less to do with any 
particular agenda and more with a, a, a desire to render the place fully and truthfully, you know? Um, and so I hope that, I hope that people fall in love with these characters and their stories in this place. Um, you know, that part of the world is not necessarily well known to a lot of people. If you're not from there, um, you know, you, you may not know a lot about it. I've, I've lived in Chicago for about 18 years. And, um, you know, I know that here in Chicago, um, when my friends think about the oil and gas industry, you know, they often sort of think of big oil companies and, and big oil executives. Um, I, I was hoping, I think, to some degree to shine a light on the lives of, of the working class people in that industry. Um, the people who even in the midst of an oil boom are generally just sort of keeping a roof over their heads. Um, and, uh, and I guess I, I kind of hope that, um, that readers will see that place as a, a place worth saving. Um, uh, you know, West Texas, has been a sort of slow rolling environmental disaster for a hundred years. Um, but that pace of that disaster has really picked up steam in recent years um, with the, with the, with the increase in fracking and horizontal drilling. Um, they're having earthquakes out there for the first time. And, uh, and yet if you drive out of my hometown, you don't have to go very far before you encounter um, the, the beautiful and incredibly fragile Chihuahuan desert, um, you know, and the, the little critters that live out in that part of the world. So, so I guess I hope that a reader maybe kind of falls in love with that place in a way that, um, even if they're not from there or maybe never even will go there, um, makes it, um, makes it real enough to them to, to, to treat it as a place that's maybe worth saving. Well, I'm already thinking well when I can get down there. I've been to New Mexico. I've been to San Antonio, but never to West Texas. You know, it's beautiful and strange, and it's singular. I mean, there's no landscape like it anywhere else that I've ever been. So, where were you in? Uh, where were you in New Mexico? Just uh, Albuquerque. I, I, I went uh, down to the uh -huh. White Sands and places like that. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I know that area very well. Yeah. It's well, I'll tell you if you, the thing to do, I did this with my son, uh, two years ago. Um, his dad, um, his and his dad's spring breaks didn't coincide. So, um, Hank and I flew down to San Antonio and got a rental car and drove out to far West Texas. We put 1500 miles on a rental car in five days and never left the state of Texas. That's wow. how big it is out there. <laughs> yeah. And we, uh, we drove the Texas river road that goes up along the border. Um, and we're out in far West Texas for days and it's just, it's, it's a lovely landscape. I don't recommend going there after, um, mid April or before mid October. <laughs> But if you could ever go out there in March, it is truly beautiful, you know, and of course, even in the, even in the landscape of the oil fields, which is, you know, significantly less beautiful, um, even amidst all of the, the oil field, um, litter, you know, the pump jacks and derricks and whatnot, um, that sky is just, is truly remarkable. Definitely. Well, I've been talking with Elizabeth Wetmore, author of the novel, Valentine. Beth, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I can't wait to I can't wait to hear it. 